0: Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, January 12th, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together here on KYM and Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security. I'm going to change things up a little bit. Uh, I'm starting off our show today with some personal news to share. Uh, This is going to come as a shock to Jeff Johnson, who's uh, sitting across from me here in the booth, uh, the station owner. Yesterday, January 11th, David Bruns, my co-author, he and I launched our fifth novel. Uh, the book is called Command and Control, and it is the first book in a new three-book 3, three book trilogy of interconnected stories. Uh, our, our novels occupy a genre we call national security thrillers, and you could think of them as uh, Tom Clancy-like novels, but crafted for the modern world. Uh, David and I have been writing together since 2014, and if you want to learn a little bit more about our writing, uh, I invite you to visit the website www.davidbruns.com to learn more. Uh, Command Control can be found at all major online booksellers, and we have hardback, paperback, audio, and ebook versions for sale through our publisher, Seven River Publishing. If you do buy Command and Control, you won't have to wait too long for the next book in our trilogy. Uh, our sixth novel, Counter Strike, will launch on February 8th. Okay, let's go ahead and get started with our show. Uh, I think you're going to uh, like our discussion today, uh, we have a lot to cover. Uh, last year, we, we discussed quite frank, uh, a lot, uh, frankly, uh, the topic of China. Uh, and we're going to continue to cover China routinely on national security this week throughout the year. And, and why is that? Well, because China poses the most serious geostrategic challenge to the United States uh, in the world today. Uh, China has advanced very quickly in numerous military capabilities, and China's national security decision-making has fundamentally changed over the past decade, with China now routinely projecting power out uh, beyond what was often referred to as the first island chain. Because of the geostrategic significance of China's activities, we're going to continue our study of China throughout this year or so. This will be the first of those those shows. Uh, With us today is someone who can help us to understand China's national security decision-making, their military capabilities, and China's policy-strategy match, which you heard us discuss uh, when Professor Stephen Walt and Professor Ron Krebs were on the show a couple weeks ago. We can even get into what to expect from China maybe in the near term. Uh, Dr. Raymond Kuo is an expert in international security in East Asia. He's currently a political scientist with the RAND Corporation, one of the top national security think tanks in America. He's published not one uh, but two books uh, this past year, uh, Following the Leader on Military Alliances and Contests of Initiative on China's Maritime Gray Zone Strategy. Uh, Dr. Kuo's other research has appeared in International Security, The Journal of Conflict Resolution, War on the Rocks, The National Interest, The Diplomat, uh, and many others. Dr. Kuo was a tenure-track professor at Fordham University and the University of Albany at SUNY. Uh, He previously worked for the United Nations, the National Democratic Institute, and the Democratic Progressive Party in Taiwan. Uh, Raymond Kuo holds a doctorate from Princeton University. Dr. Raymond Kuo, thank you for joining us today on National Security This Week.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So we we do have a lot to cover today. I I like to start the show by trying to learn a little bit more about my guest's background. Um, You're a political scientist. You decided to focus much of your your study on China. Uh, Why China? What is it about the study of China that appeals to you?
1: Sure. Um, So most importantly, my parents are from Taiwan. My family's from Taiwan. So you know we have you know so China how stable it is, how powerful it is, what it wants, is it willing to use force to get it? Those are hugely important questions for my family. And as you mentioned, I previously worked for the DBP in Taiwan, which is the current, uh, I guess, governing slash ruling party. So everything I say should be taken with a big grain of salt, with that in mind. <laughs> okay.
0: um,
1: but, you know, my, my, a lot of my research focuses on sort of broad transhistorical analysis and asks, how can you deal with the rising powers? How can you coalesce and coordinate opposing coalitions of like-minded countries to ensure that either it rises peacefully or if it doesn't rise peacefully, that you have the options available to kind of contain it. Okay.
0: Raymond, can you tell us a little bit about uh, China's invest, uh, invest ad, excuse me, advancements in military power projection? Uh, how rapidly has a People's Liberation Army uh, evolved in their capability to put sizable military force beyond China's mainland? Let's just start with that discussion, maybe.
1: Sure. So, On the one hand, you you can make the benign argument about China that officially China's military spending is generally kept pace with its broader economic growth. You know, it's the second largest economy. Well, it's also the second largest defense spender. Its GDP grows at like, or it used to grow, let's say, you know, ten, then seven, then six percent a year. Uh, Its military spending has grown slightly less than that. Let's say, like, you know, I'm just kind of making up numbers here, like eight, five, four percent. Um, so you can imagine that as a country grows in power, it legitimately wants to have more and more influence and more and more security for, say, its economic interests, that kind of thing. However, unofficially, they because you can't necessarily trust the the um, the the. the Uh, the numbers, the military spending numbers coming out of China, unofficially, China's definitely grown much more than it's uh, than it's suggested. And it's also in particular focused on capabilities to deny the United States access to East Asia. We're talking things like carrier killer missiles, advanced uh, anti-air systems. They have the largest missile stockpile in the world and especially in ranges that the US and also Russia haven't really had because those two countries were under the uh, Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which banned intermediate range nuclear missiles. China was never part of it. Mm-hmm. And so it has, uh, you know, the ability to strike, say, three to 600 kilometers out right when, say, the U.S. Navy is kind of pulling into East Asia. And it's able to, it, uh, China, therefore, has the ability to kind of drive us out or like hit make a long range strike before we're really ready. Um, and, you know, these are you can think of them as largely defensive systems. But now we're starting to get traditional power projection. Uh, China has two carriers. Um one that I believe it bought from Ukraine, uh, the other developed indigenously. <clears throat> they also have a fleet-sized carrier in development now. And so we typically think of aircraft carriers as the kind of, uh, I was going to say prima donna, but maybe that is true. <laughs> you were in the Navy, you can tell me that's that's an accurate way of saying calling them. They are the, the kind of primary way we think that states... Project power out into uh, out beyond their borders. Um, we also have extensive modernization of the People's Liberation Army. That's the PLA. Even though it says army, it really means the entire uh, uh, Chinese military. Right. Uh, and this especially includes the air force, the navy, and also what they call the Strategic Rocket Forces. Those missile stockpiles I mentioned. Um, and lastly, there's some really innovative. Like, gotta hand it to them. They have some really innovative development uh, to handle, say, a Taiwan invasion scenario. So that such like converting civilian ferries so they have roll on roll off capability for military vehicles so even though a lot of people say like well look china doesn't have that many amphibious vehicles to launch an invasion of taiwan well they have a lot of civilian shipping if those if those ships are hardened so that they can actually carry several military vehicles that gives the beijing quite a lot of capacity so overall um, their modernization has advanced quite quickly. They have the second largest budget. The budget, unlike say the United States, is focused very much on competing against the United States, whereas the US has a lot of diverse interests. So they very much are a a rising peer competitor. Uh, Let me ask you a follow
0: up question a little bit about uh, that rapid advancement in in capability and even capacity. Uh, China, I mean, they really advanced very, very quickly over the last 20 years in their capabilities in a lot of areas. they're very good at reverse engineering technology that they acquire, uh, oftentimes uh, through espionage. Uh, mm. How has that impacted uh, their their security, I guess, policy in the fact that they've been dele- able to leap ahead with some of their most advanced <laughs> fighter jets, uh, new construction ideas on submarines, things like that that are, that are almost pure competitors to what the United States has spent Hundreds of billions of dollars to develop the Chinese steal some of that technology, reverse engineer it, and very quickly turn around and be, and, and start mass producing those things. Uh, what's the, what's the impact there?
1: Right. So I mean, it's, a, it's a great point. I I tend to think that we don't want to overstate how much how powerful China is. So, for example, it's it's hard to tell because again, their 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 bookkeeping is kind of opaque. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's been suggested that. You know, up to a third of its military spending is actually focused on domestic spending. So mm-hmm. domestic uh, security, um, whether that be Xinjiang, Tibet, Hong Kong now.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so it, it, to some extent, it would behoove China to actually release more of this information. They don't do it because it's kind of a, it would be a, a kind of a stain or a black mark on the CCP's governance to so say like, you need to spend like a really big chunk of money just to control your own internal population that suggests you're not really that legitimate. but would also help other countries think that well you know they have the second largest military spending but it's not as threatening as it seems Mm -hmm. because they have to focus so much domestically um also you know we think about like the j31 it's uh it looks essentially like a copy of the f-35 which i think is widely assumed that the chinese were able to hack um i forget the i forget the manufacturer but steal a lot of the plans at the same time it's the problem with reverse engineering or stealing things uh, there's a Morrow and Andrea Gili. they're two point brothers, political scientists. They have a great piece out there from a few years back about how, even though China does steal technology, um, it doesn't necessarily translate into better capabilities that yes, you get, you get, you tend to leapfrog a little bit more. It's a second mover advantage, but because he didn't actually do the development process, you are not as able to understand like, why did, why did you put all this stuff together? Right. Why did the, why, like you, you miss that critical learning process. And so it gives you certain advantages, but it might kind of under the hood provide a bunch of other disadvantages that we, we just can't see yet.
0: Yeah. And I, and I would highlight the fact that uh, experience matters in executing operations and the United States has a Unfortunately, frankly, a wealth of a combat experience over the last uh, two, three decades. Uh, China really hasn't been in any major war <laughs> of any kind uh, for a very long time. So even though they may have uh, strong capacity, their real capabilities to carry out war, because war is really an exercise in, uh, in confusion and, and terror, uh, may not be as, as good as we're anticipating.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, during the early part of the, or sorry, the later part of the uh, Hu Jintao uh, regime, and then now into Xi Jinping, there was this concerted effort at modernization, which I think really worried a lot of people in in the American defense community, because, oh, wow, China seems to be really serious about cutting out the dead weight, streamlining and getting a really professional military training and forced acquisition process. That is true. Um, I think that feeling has been tempered a little bit, just because, you know, as Xi Jinping becomes more of a personalistic dictator, right. then it becomes, you know, he's consolidating control. You know, was when we when they execute a whole bunch of generals, were they actually executing like the bad people, like the, the people who were less effective, or was it just about putting Xi Jinping's like uh, personal generals in control, yeah. which degrades force readiness.
0: Like like Stalin's purge of uh, Tukhachevsky and the other leaders, 1935-36, uh, exactly. uh, before Russia, Soviet Union was dropped into the war.
1: Uh, exactly. So, uh,
0: let, Raymond, let, let's, uh, let's sort of move into the South China Sea discussion. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to start with sort of a discussion on China's military capabilities. We'll continue that uh, with this next question. When I started training to become an intelligence officer in the U.S. Navy back in uh, early 1991— the first research paper an analytical research paper that i drafted at intel school was uh, was on the people's liberation army air forces aerial refueling capabilities, right? That sounds kind of benign. Why is that important? Uh, back then, the uh, the PLAAF uh, was just starting to work on that technology, that aerial refueling capability. But I, but I knew even back then that that would eventually give them the ability to push fighters and even, even bombers out to a much greater range to project power beyond uh, China's shores. So you fast forward to today. China now has uh, pretty good aerial refueling capabilities, and they have advanced fighters and bombers. Uh, what have you? What have they been doing with their long-range
1: air capabilities lately? Sure. Um, well, I think the the biggest one. This is a little bit outside of the South China Sea, but I think it's relevant. Uh, has been basically be Taiwan. Yeah. Now, Taiwan, I wouldn't necessarily call that long range, but right. you know the the. They're able to conduct these air operations because they have the cover of longer-range uh, air defenses uh, and, and also power projection. And so, you know, in October we saw about 150 incursions into Taiwan's uh, ages the Air Defense Identification Zone. Mm-hmm. So, this isn't an incursion into Taiwan's territorial waters, but it is an incursion—an unprecedented number of incursions into you know, the, the zone where you have to say, like, "Hey, who are you?" And if you don't tell us who you are, who you are. We might have to resort to some sort of coercive measure, like flying up a plane to go check you out. Mm -hmm. Um, And their ability to, you know, sortie about 150 planes over the course of a week, or less than a week, actually, is pretty impressive. I mean, maintaining that pace of operations with that many planes, and especially the configuration of planes they had it wasn't just, say, short-range fighters, but also a combination of electronic warfare planes as, alongside bombers suggests the ability to conduct an alpha strike uh like kind of the weighted first strike in the opening engagement of a war um plus in total china has about i think 1700 aircraft so it's a pretty large fleet mm-hmm. uh, the important thing to note is that as big as it is it's not as advanced as, as say the us or even the russian uh uh, uh fleets um uh, they most I guess they're, they're, they're most prominent uh, fighter jet, uh, kind of fighter bombers, the J 20. And it's huge. It's, it's absolutely enormous. Uh, you put this up against like an <laughs> F 22, and I think it's like double the size. This, this thing is a gigantic. Um, it technically is a stealthy plane, but really it's not built for stealth. It's built to carry a whole bunch of weapons, get in quickly, unload, and then get out as fast as possible. I mentioned the J 31. It's kind of a copy of the F 35. And it's important to note that you know a lot of the uh PLA AF and the PLAN AF, <clears throat> they're about a third of the aircraft or older generation that won't really pose that much of a challenge to the United States. Yeah. But you know, there is a lot of them. Right. And att- attrition in war is actually, you know, it can be a useful strategy yeah, in this case. True. And so you know, their focus is on a standoff fight, not necessarily having tactical engagements. But then again, the US is also kind of the same boat.
0: Yeah, so so two quick uh, follow-up items. Uh, that aerial that refueling capability, even though Taiwan's not that far away, what it does give uh, the PL, P- People's Liberation Army Air Force the ability to do is loiter a lot longer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and, and a good strategy on their part, because the Taiwanese Air Force is much smaller, uh, right. if it forces the Taiwanese Air Force to send aircraft up to respond time and time and time again, it's wearing down those aircraft, uh, wearing down Absolutely. the pilots, etc. So uh, there's, there's sort of a two-front uh, benefit to, to China to do that.
1: Absolutely. And and just to kind of jump in on that one, I think the the main advantage that, say, the U.S. and its partners has vis-a-vis this sort of capability is that China doesn't have full carrier battle group operations, yet. right? Like they have carriers, right? Yeah. Um, but they don't have an entire battle group that surrounds and protects the carriers that can constantly keep these planes up in the air. And so their power projection is limited. Yes, they have aerial refueling, but they're also kind of contained within say a whole bunch of ages, or, you know, as soon as if you were to try to conduct an aerial refueling operation outside in the the Pacific, everyone would know because you'd have to pass all those planes through everyone else's ages, right? Uh, It makes it very hard for them to be able to train and conduct these kind of operations or uh, to practice these operations. So that said, (laughs) eventually they will be able to do it. And and do it very, very fluidly.
0: And so I'm hoping to focus a little bit down into the South China Sea. So Hainan Island becomes a a strong base of operations for for the Chinese as they push air power down into the South China Sea. Uh, We know that China flies regularly down into the South China Sea with these aerial fielding capabilities. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what China has done in the in both the Paracel and Spratly Islands? Uh, I suspect many of our listeners have maybe heard uh, the names of some of those islands because they do come up in the news once in a while, but maybe we could get into the sp- specifics. Tell us a little bit about the Chinese bases in the Paracel and Spratly
1: Islands. Sure. And so, you know, these are, I mean, technically not islands. Uh, yeah. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, um, there's a, there's a very strict legal definition of what constitutes an island <laughs> under the UN Convention of Law of the Sea, right. UNCLOS, um, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Um, and so we call these islands, but they're usually just maritime features. Oftentimes they are submerged when the tide comes in. That said, um, China and, you know, to be fair, all, the, I think all the South China Sea claimants um, have reclaimed some of these islands to create, you know, taking the sort of shoal and then making into like an actual proper island that can sustain life it legally doesn't count as an island uh under onslaughts but it's it is like you can actually do things from it and so for china they've you know it's the scale of what china's done that set it apart it's claimed far it's reclaimed far more territorial land than all the other claimants combined um it's also militarized some of these islands as well i think the big three are fiery cross mischief reef and subi reef um and so you have military-style airstrips uh, on each of these islands, uh, advanced uh, A two uh sorry uh, anti-air air denial systems, uh, so air defenses, um, and also uh, especially I think on Fire across, there are underground stockpiles, um, so just you know kind of weapons caches for a longer fight, uh, and so these islands allow China pro- to project power with into the uh, the South China Sea and say and essentially give their Oh, I shouldn't have mentioned this, sorry. Uh, Going back to their capabilities, it's not just that China has impressive military capabilities, which they do, but it's also that they have impressive sub-conventional military capabilities. This would be the Chinese Coast Guard, the People's Armed Forces Maritime Militia. These are nominally civilian organizations uh, that, you know, it's especially with the Maritime Militia, you're talking an unknown number of ships, maybe of several hundred, maybe close to a thousand, which are essentially fishing trawlers. Um, very lightly armed if they're armed at all. <clears throat> but what they often do is if, say, they feel like the Philippine, they see a Philippine fishing trawler is encroaching upon what they consider to be Chinese territory, the maritime militia will just surround that boat and drive them away, either by ramming or sometimes using water cannons, that kind of thing. And so <clears throat> I think the important thing to understand is that the island building in the South China Sea is in coordination with the subconventional civilian capabilities that they have. That the islands and their ability to project power give these civilian forces sort of top cover. Uh, you can go and harass a Philippine trawler because you know the Philippine Air Force doesn't want to come over and settle the issue because they'll get shot down by the defenses on fiery cross or mischief reef. Yeah. Um, so these, this, it's very much part of an integrated strategy that you'll have Island reclamation plus a civilian ability to coercively push other claimants out of the area.
0: So that you, you covered that on your book uh, contests of initiative, right? Did, did, did we lose you?
1: Oh, sorry. I couldn't hear you. I think we were on mute.
0: Oh, uh so contest of initiative the book you wrote on China's maritime gray zone was that covered that in detail right Yes it does okay Uh so let's uh let's keep pushing forward uh I, I do want to take a quick uh identification break here if I could uh, we have uh for our audience, so you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield. Uh, this is uh, National Security this week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Raymond Quo, and we're discussing China, the South China Sea, and, and a little bit about ASEAN as part of our focus on China throughout 2022. Uh, so, Raymond, uh, why are the Spratly Islands so valuable to China?
1: Sure, I mean, on their own, they're just rocks. In fact like they're less than rocks right like they're they're rocks that sometimes come above the water and sometimes are under the water um but the but there are i think there are three reasons first is that one if you're able to convert these rocks into proper islands and then use those islands to project power well that helps to secure your supplies um a lot of trade to china and from china passes through the south china sea and so if china doesn't control these waterways then who does well that's the us navy um and if you're a rising power well you kind of want to make sure that you know the control of your own trade routes lies in your own hands so that's one reason secondly if you can get these rocks recognized as proper islands then it confers upon what's called an exclusive economic and, and also you say that you can uh you get everyone else to recognize that this these are, islands are yours then you can get what's called an exclusive economic zone mm-hmm. um uh you, know, you get exclusive exploitation and exploration rights of whatever resources happen to extend around those islands. And so we think that there's approximately, uh, like there's like, like about 5% of, or equivalent to 5% of oil and natural gas res- uh, reserves are kind of in the South China Sea, And so if you're able to get the exclusive economic zone, then you can exploit and tap into that kind of under- underwater riches. I think the bigger issue, the one that really drives this, is nationalism. Ah. That you know the core interests, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, and Tibet. Um, those are the really ones that, like, if, if other people interfere, China has pretty made it pretty clear that they will res- resort to military force. The South China Sea is increasingly one of those areas as well that mm. China said, we have this nine dash line from this map we found in like 1947. Well, actually, I think the Taiwanese found it, but whatever. <laughs> We're going to claim it as ours as well. The, essentially, the entire South China Sea, that's ours. And this is a key critical step in getting the rest of the world to respect us and in our national rejuvenation. And so it's that combination of secure supplies, natural resources, and nationalism, which, especially the latter one, the last one, which really drives why China is so interested in this area.
0: Uh, Raymond let me let me ask you a question um the the US Senate has failed failed to ratify the UN convention on the law of the sea they they won't vote on it uh, it's they've been refusing to to go along despite the fact that the navy the marine corps and the coast guard and even the merchant marine uh Mar- the maritime administration have advocated on behalf of signing on to the UN convention on the law of the sea uh do oh. we lose something in in uh in the diplomatic arena by not being a signatory to UNCLOS uh, with regards to engaging China on this issue of the Spratly Islands.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think what's even worse is that in 1994, UNCLOS was uh, renegotiated to explicitly carve out exceptions for the United States so that it could, you know, ex- you know, at the time we were one of the few places that could really exploit deep sea resources. Mm-hmm. I think that's less so now. <clears throat> but, you know, in 1994 the signatories carved out an exception for the United States, and we still didn't sign it, <laughs> even after they would the card of these exceptions. So it's like, well, what do you want us to do? Uh, but in terms of uh, vis-a-vis competition with China, I think it absolutely has effect in uh, at least two ways. One, because we're not a signatory, we can't therefore work with other signatories to uh, challenge t- uh, challenge China's claims through unclossed mechanisms. So in 2013, the Philippines lodged a suit against China saying, you know, you're claiming all this stuff here. You, you say that there's this nine-dash line of these so quote-unquote historic rights. We're going to call shenanigans on this and not, <laughs> and say it's not real. UNCLOS, what do you say? Mm. And the U.S. supported this suit, but it couldn't really do anything because it wasn't part of UNCLOS. you know, right. not part of it. You can't tell UNCLOS to do anything. Um, secondly, I think it also <clears throat> it also restricts our ability to have a settlement within, say, the South China Sea. Uh, political settlement say, look, we want all of you to decide, follow on clause and recognize that when it says these are or are not islands, you all abide by that. Mm-hmm. And they can turn around and say like, well, what do you care? You're not part of this. You're not a <laughs> member here. So don't, you know, don't butt your head, don't butt your nose into where it's not needed. Yeah. Um, it's a strong and easy retort. And it's kind of unfortunate that the U S can't, it loses a lot of sort of political capital, I guess, yeah, to really be able to have an influence because it's not part of it.
0: Uh, Dr. Kuo, may, maybe we could talk a little bit. You just mentioned the, the Philippines, a couple of examples there. Maybe you could give us sort of a uh, kind of a, a once over the region. Uh, what are the other countries that are around in the South China Sea that are claimants to all or, or uh,
1: part of the, the Spratly Islands as an example? Thing so China has the most expansive claim. Uh, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. Taiwan also does too. Their claims are essentially synonymous. <laughs> Weirdly enough, um, despite how much Taiwan and China kind of butt heads on this, on, on other issues, they are really aligned on South China Sea claims because they, they keep pointing back to this uh, nine dash line, 1947 map. Um, the Philippines have a couple claims to the uh, in the Spratly Islands. Vietnam does so as well. Malaysia and also Brunei. Uh, but the thing about, you know, all the other ones, barring China, is that these are, you know, they have built outposts. These are much smaller outposts, much, much less technologically advanced. Uh, <clears throat> and I think there is a worry within the United States that if somehow the U.S. were just to solve this China issue, then all these other claimants would come back and, you know, you'd be right back into the the, the situation you're in where China says, look, everybody else is building islands. Why shouldn't I build islands too? And you're kind of, Give yourself 10, 15 years, you're right back into the, the mix again, um, which I think is underscores the reason for, uh, underscores the need for the United States to sign on to UNCLOS if it really wants to solve this issue, that there is a legitimate international regime out there about how we sort out these issues. Uh, they are very much aligned with the United States' interests because we had a very strong hand in negotiating it, and yet we didn't sign. And so <laughs> everyone else, especially in sort of the South China Sea, kind of takes it as, well, then maybe there's some wiggle room for us to push out these claims vis-a-vis all of our other counterparts. Uh, And it just kind of leaves a sort of policy mess.
0: So if we expand out a little bit more uh, to the region, uh, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN? What what role are they playing in helping to solve this diplomatic uh, conundrum in the South China Sea?
1: So they're trying. I, I, I want to give them credit where credit's due. They are trying to coalesce uh, Southeast Asia into taking a united position uh, vis-a-vis territorial claims in the South China Sea. The problem is uh, <clears throat> a couple-fold. One is that ASEAN is a consensus decision-making uh, body, so essentially that means everyone has to agree. But that also means any single state has an ability to veto whatever happens. Yeah, <clears throat> and so, <clears throat> uh, uh. During the the Philippine, when they were when they were bringing up the case uh, on the arbitral tribunal, I believe China had reached out to Cambodia, which was the ASEAN chair at the time, and essentially quashed any sort of ASEAN statement on the Philippine the the, the, the Philippine suit just because well it's the chair and also everyone has a veto, so it's really easy to pick off a particular country and get them to kind of stymie everything else. <clears throat> In addition, um. Because it's a consensus-based organization, so ASEAN's tried to create a maritime code of conduct amongst its, amongst its own members and then coalesce that to give enough political weight to get China to sign on it as well. Um, <clears throat> that hasn't really gone anywhere. Uh, you know, initially, they wanted to be binding, but then they made it non-binding. It sent, it, <laughs> originally, they wanted to have some kind of enforcement mechanism. It all got watered down because China was able to talk to two or three of its closer trading partners within ASEAN and say, we really don't like that here are you know here are the consequences if you follow through with this here is also like some carrots that you may like in order to get you not to kind of to to block some of this process and so ASEAN unfortunately has been a kind of a relatively minor player in this because it can't figure out collectively what it wants to actually do. Um, Speaking personally here John you and I participated in a a south china sea simulation at the u last uh, late last year and a lot of the dynamics that came out of that simulation with just you know with uh with master students i think really reflected what was going on that countries like indonesia or cambodia especially cambodia which is doesn't really have any territorial claims and or like a navy really uh right. <laughs> just doesn't care about this kind of thing right yeah. they're like i don't really care about the south china sea it's really not that important to me um and so the Chinese can come in and kind of pick off some of these countries and leverage their bilateral weight to stymie the entire multilateral organization.
0: So so what, what I hear you saying is that, uh, you know, we talk a lot on this show about uh, the tools of national power, diplomacy, information, military, and economic power. And uh, every country has those tools. They can use those tools as they see fit to pursue their national security objectives. Uh, in the case of the South China Sea, uh, ASEAN has has pretty much been uh, rendered moot because China uses their economic tools of power to put enough political pressure on uh, some of the countries in the ASEAN uh, uh, group uh, to block any action to prevent them from doing whatever they want to do in the South
1: China Sea. Yep, absolutely, and, and also I would add to that, they take advantage of the institutional constraints within ACR because it's so consensus oriented, and because there is a sort of veneer. I, I don't. I want. I don't mean. To, I don't mean to be um, uh, like critical of this, but there it feels like there's always a veneer of sort of regional unity that's upheld and sacrifices certain states or bilateral interests in the name of that sort of regional unity, even though this is a fairly thin organization that. Just hasn't been able to coalesce on some of these bigger security issues.
0: Does ASEAN need to adapt to the challenges of the modern day world? I mean, would they be better off sort of moving in the direction of a NATO alliance? Or I mean, I, I know I know there's a tremendous historical <laughs> uh, yeah. set of circumstances that impact, <clears throat> uh, but China, having demonstrated what they've done internally and uh, sort of the the coercive nature of a lot of their exercise of of the tools of national power externally, I mean, are the, are the ASEAN nations starting to kind of wake up to the fact that they might be under Beijing's control before they know it?
1: I mean, some of them are, some of them aren't. Uh, I'd I shift the framing slightly okay. that, you know, for countries like, uh, not to pick Cambodia, but it's just Cambodia, uh, or <laughs> Indonesia, even, um, they have at best adopted sort of a hedging strategy that and i think part because their interest is not necessarily security related their interest is economically related Mm -hmm. um so long as there's free access to the south china sea and goods and services can pass through i guess goods not services but goods can pass through and it's really not that big of a deal for either of these countries you know uh who is in control whereas for a country like vietnam (laughs) they're very much concerned given their long coastline like they're very much concerned about what uh, who actually controls it, what rules they follow, and, and who they need, what they need to comply with. And so, you know, should ASEAN adapt? I would think so. Can ASEAN adapt? I tend not to think so. And so I think we're starting to see that Vietnam, even the Philippines, uh, uh, with Duterte uh, still in office, he was kind of anti-U.S. for a while, but I think the relationship with China hasn't panned out as well as he had hoped. And so even he is kind of flipping back towards the United States. Uh, you're starting to see a splintering of ASEAN, which, sort of, you know, ACM as a group has tried to tamp down some of these centrifugal forces. But I'm not sure how long they can continue to do so. Um, they either need to make a decision as a group, or you're just going to see a hollowing out of the organization.
0: Yeah. Uh, So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Raymond Kuo, and we're discussing China, the South China Sea, and ASEAN as part of our focus on China throughout 2022. Uh, Okay, Raymond, let's discuss the strategic consequences of of China having built military bases in the South China Sea. How do those bases and, and China's continuous presence, how do they impact the region?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there are kind of generally two schools of thought. The first is that, uh, great, you put a whole bunch of targets, relatively hard and relatively not, in a stationary location. Thank you for making so clear where your assets are. (laughs) Let's bomb them. And I think this is uh, maybe the U.S. Navy or the Air Force tends to say this, that it's not a big deal because they're just right there and we can destroy (laughs) them at will. Leaving aside the operational difficulty or not of, of, of taking out these bases, I think the bigger question is political. And this is tends to be where I fall on, the second school of thought, that yes, you may be able to destroy these really easily. But at the same time, are you going to do that? Right. <laughs> Wouldn't that be an escalation to war? And if so, if you're not willing to escalate to war, doesn't that mean these bases still serve a purpose? And this is kind of why I was talking about the subconventional capabilities with the Chinese Coast Guard maritime militia that <clears throat> if you're if your only recourse is to go to war then that gives china lots and lots of space at the sub-war level to do a lot of things that they want so they can use these spaces as you know, refueling points as uh places to, uh, to for isr uh, uh intelligence surveillance or reconnaissance mm-hmm. <laughs> to get an understanding of what's going on in, the, in the area uh to show the flag you know the chinese don't necessarily want control of the South China Sea. I mean, they do, but really what they want is compliance. Yeah. That other states follow their rules. And so these bases, in combination with those subconventional capabilities, gives them the ability to show the flag, to intimidate, to make sure that everyone recognizes that we are here and you have to follow our rules. And those rules include letting us have a lot of leeway to explore and exploit whatever natural resources happen to be in the area.
0: Yeah, I guess when you have a you know population of what is it one point three billion people and a continuously growing economy, you need to have access to natural resources, and if you can can get them relatively close to home,
1: that's a lot easier than going all the way around the world to try and acquire them. I mean, to some extent, yeah. but you know the the one advantage about the U.S. international system, the U.S. led international system, is that it's a free trade system. Mm-hmm. China doesn't need to do this, right? It's doing this because it's worried about the security of its supply lines, but. Exploiting deep sea resources, well, we don't do it for a reason because it's expensive and it's dangerous. It's just much easier to haul the, the, the oil from like oil from the Middle East where you scratch the surface and, a, you know, like the geyser comes <laughs> out. Um, and so I think part of the issue here is that it doesn't necessarily make economic sense. It's it's And this is why I tend to think that nationalism really drives a lot of these issues, that um, it's about... Secure control of your of your sea lanes, uh, and being able to kind of say that we are the top dog in this particular region, uh, and we are creating the assets and the installations that allow us to enforce that sort of compliance.
0: So, so we we've talked so far in the show about the fact that China has is really a rapidly rising military power. Uh, they're they're exercising a, a heck of a lot more influence uh, diplomatically around the world than they have traditionally and and economically they're a, they're a powerhouse so having these bases down in the south china sea what's the psychological impact on the political leadership in the other countries around the south china sea i mean are they so Intimidated by China, that there really isn't anything they're willing to do at this point to sort of uh, push China back. Uh, me, we've talked about the fact that ASEAN is is almost been neutered. <laughs> Are individual <laughs> countries able to do anything? Are they willing to do anything?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think that's you know what's been surprising to me is that we there's there's a narrative out there about China using its economic uh, weight and ties to. <clears throat> Essentially, buy off states to come to its side, and I haven't seen that actually happen. Uh, in part because, you know, trade economics they tend to be they tend to be win win sort of situations, <clears throat> whereas security ones tend to be win loss. And so, when a security issue confronts an economic one, states tend to choose the security over the econ, uh, and that's what we're seeing here. China has done a remarkable job of losing friends and making enemies through its <laughs> island building campaign. That's I true. mean, <laughs> you know, Vietnam of all countries is getting closer to the, is, is developing closer military ties with the United States and Japan. I mean, we fought a war with them uh, like 50, 50 right. years ago. Right. And now they're here like saying like, we want to actually coordinate with you in the US. It's like, yeah, we really want to coordinate with you too. Um, <laughs> the Philippines, even though Duterte, as I mentioned, has was you know really trying to tack towards China, has come essentially well. I wouldn't say all the way back to full, but it's he's the Philippine government is definitely making moves to come back and tighten up those security ties. Uh, you know, so if coercion, whether through economic or military means, uh, and compliance was China's goal, then it's clearly backfired for the most security security uh, threatened or security oriented states in the region. Um, This is a a good tailwind for the United States. I think this actually presents a really important opportunity. And the Biden administration is starting to um, deepen those ties. It's certainly doing it within Northeast Asia with Korea, uh, Japan, Taiwan, less so with Southeast Asia, in part because Southeast Asia is just politically more fragmented. Mm.
0: So I mentioned earlier that I that we had uh, Professor Stephen Walt from the Kennedy School over at, out at Harvard and uh, Professor Ron Krebs from the University of Minnesota on a, a couple weeks ago talking about this concept of a grand strategy. Right. Uh, as part of this grand strategy discussion today for you and me, uh, if— what options are on the table for the United States in responding to Chinese moves in the South China Sea specifically? To put, And maybe I'll put it bluntly. If you were sitting on the National Security Council staff right now uh, and China was your responsibility, what options would you put on the table for, for President Biden and the national security team to consider right now based on the current situation? Sure. So I think um, this is permiss- by this, by the way, this is your interview question to join the national security
1: council. <laughs> there we go. Uh, I'm gonna, let's can we clip this and I'll send it over to them. <laughs> okay, <all right. laughs> um, so I think they're doing a lot of, a lot of things, right. Um, as I said, you tend to see more of this in Northeast Asia than Southeast Asia, but it's still there that it's working with allies and partners to figure out what is the joint response to these, these moves. Um, I think, in the 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 contest of the initiative book, uh, I wrote that the the I found that one of the the, the major issues, uh, one of the the what determines whether or not China conducts a gray zone operation or conducts a gray zone strategy against you, is what the level of political cohesion or fragmentation among states. <laughs> and so, the more politically cohesive you are, that like say if ASEAN can get together and say this is what we want, or if you can just create a smaller grouping of let's say Malaysia, Philippines, and Vietnam, along with the United States, the more cohesive you are, the less China is able to pursue these gray zone strategies because it doesn't want to piss off a whole bunch of countries at the same time. Uh, It also doesn't want the sort of legitimacy that comes with multilateral pushes back to say that, you know, on the one hand, China can say right now, well, look, The Philippines may be upset, but it's just the Philippines. They're they're (laughs) their own individual psychoses and neuroses. The Vietnamese, they may be upset. It's just them. The U.S., it's just them. But if you get all three countries together to say, hey, we are really not okay with this. This is the common principles that you should be following. And those ideally would be linked to UNCLOS. Then it's the Chinese lose a lot of narrative legitimacy in their (laughs) claims. And so I think the U.S. is doing a good job in setting that up. I think uh, two things would help out. One is greater economic engagement with the region. Um, I know TPP is kind of a dead letter, but doing TPP would be really good. Yeah. I mean, yeah. when the U.S. withdrew from that, uh, the Singaporean prime minister said, look, if you, you know, this is a test of your credibility. If you're not going to be able to do economic engagement, why should we trust that you're going to do security engagement? Yeah. If the the easy lift of econ is just something you can't even handle, then we are sure that you can't do the, the heavy lift of military and security.
0: Yeah, I, I um, saw a TPP pulling out of TPP as just as a gift to China. I mean, it was it, just absolutely. handing over influence in the economic world uh, for the entire Pacific region basin.
1: Absolutely. And, yeah, I think the you know there's some discussions right now about whether or not the United States wants to join up. Mm. But the problem is that you sacrifice a lot of negotiating money. That you had the opportunity. You negotiated uh, <clears throat> before the organization was formed. And now and you pulled out. And now you are knocking on the door asking me to let in. And you've just handed over a whole bunch of leverage to the TPP members, which understandably, they're going to they're gonna leverage as much as possible to make sure that you are committed and are going to stay in.
0: Yeah, and, uh, and yeah we, we, we should highlight very quickly, uh, TPP did go forward, as you mentioned, uh, not with China in it, but China invited all of the TPP members uh, to join their regional
1: comprehensive trade partnership. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. they all accepted. <laughs> I mean, it's I, I'm less concerned about that because Chinese sort of trade organizations tend to be fairly thin as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are not like what we might consider high quality organizations set, setting a whole bunch of standards and rules. Um, but the fact that you kind of cede that space to China to allow them to be setting up that, uh, setting those rules and those standards is not a good thing. And with Asia being the sort of engine of global growth, we really have to be engaging with Asia on its own terms, uh, and economics development, that is their principal interest and concern.
0: So, so let me ask you this. Um, we've talked about all these issues today with regard to the South China Sea, It, 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 is conflict brewing over Chinese control of the Spratly Islands? I mean, should we w- be worried that the that the Spratlys are a likely flashpoint for open conflict in the region? Is that more likely than say a Taiwan scenario or is Taiwan more likely?
1: I still think Taiwan is more likely in the sense that Taiwan is very much declared core interest. Um, whereas the South China Sea is kind of quasi there. Uh, and so, uh, and also uh Xi Jinping has been making more uh, claims to vis-a-vis Taiwan than it ha- he has vis-a-vis the South China Sea. Uh, yeah. I this haven't, is not I haven't heard that...
0: much discussion about South China Sea in the, in the last couple of months. It's uh, been a heavy um, focus on Taiwan.
1: Exactly, and, you know. This isn't to say that some accident, uh, like you know, two ships collide uh, or <laughs> environmental degradation of some kind, <clears throat> that that couldn't generate this kind of uh, of a flashpoint, but. Mm-hmm. I, in kind of ranking the different priorities, I put it definitely below uh, uh, below Taiwan. Uh, I was wondering maybe it's below Korea to some extent. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> David Kang, uh, I was in a discussion with him a, f- a few months back, and he, I believe he said that Korea is more of a flashpoint than Taiwan. Uh, I, I still need to think more about that, but yeah, I, I tend to think that it's not going to be a it's not as much of a flashpoint. But that that said, though, you know, China d- is doing a fairly good job of picking off countries so that it doesn't become a bigger issue. And, you know, the status quo benefits China, right? If nobody is resisting, then it has a better ability to keep projecting its own power forward. Uh, The U.S. can do a better job of listening to regional concerns. I mentioned economics uh, and getting together. And and it has to decide whether or not this is actually worth the fight. If it is worth the fight, then it has to uh, take some of its, uh, you know, take the diplomatic leadership to bring all these countries together into a more cohesive whole on this issue.
0: So what I think I'm hearing you saying is that the United States is far better off with friends in a dark alley at night than without. (laughs) Absolutely. And that we're better off being uh, politically uh, or diplomatically engaged around the world, especially in crisis points uh, where we have national security interests, than to not be engaged with partners and allies uh, and friends. Absolutely. Uh, Okay, Dr. Kuo, uh, what else should our listeners know about the South China Sea? What what haven't we covered today that
1: that they should know uh, about the region? Sure, yeah. Uh, You know, I mean— so one thing that often happens when I'm like giving discussions about, about Asia is that you'll I often have like the Oriental theme playing in my head, mm. you know, like kind of like, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's not a good theme. Um, <laughs> I <understand>. and, <laughs> and I think the the issue is that oftentimes in, in these firm policy discussions in the United States, we tend to center the United States and China um, for understandable reasons, right? Like you're in the United States, you're working for the US or for its interests, you're going to be centering the United States. Um, the primary threat is China. That's who you're going to be focusing on, but Asia is far more diverse yeah. than just China. Uh, and I think it's really important for the United States, especially to be listening to third parties. Um, they are persuadable. They are sitting on the fence. Uh, and when we listen to them, we're able to actually make great inroads. I think again, Northeast Asia is a great example of this. Japan, Japan, <laughs> um, and uh, Korea, uh, their presidents and the prime minister, they were the, their first two summit visits uh, to the White House under the Biden administration. And, you know, those joint statements that were released from those summit meetings, uh, for the, the Japan case, they mentioned Taiwan for the first time in 52 years. Right. Uh, with Korea, <laughs> Yeah. For Korea, I don't know if they'd ever mentioned before, but they mentioned it then. Yeah. And so, <clears throat> you know, especially in the Korea case, you're like, I'm not entirely certain that I see that, engagement in Taiwan is in South Korea's interests (laughs) or directly related. But then again, you could definitely make a case that if China were to take over Taiwan, for example, you have much less secure access to goods and trade and commodities that goes up through, you know, the the sort of west, east coast of China. Um, And the ability of the Biden administration to take that sort of nugget and say, no, 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 Korea, this is actually in your interests. And to get them to make a public statement about that and sort of bring the northeast asian partners together that's a sign of what engagement by the united states can do uh, and so you have to listen to what the people in the region are talking about what their interests are and then try to meet them halfway and so i think that's also kind of underlines the idea that joining tpp or not pulling out of tpp <laughs> even better is a, is very much within the u.s interests if we want to have a more secure and stable Asia.
0: Uh, Raymond, let's let's bring it back uh, to this this discussion on Taiwan because uh, Taiwan clearly is a major strategic issue. Uh, uh, you, you recently penned an article back in early December uh, in War on the Rocks called "The Counterintuitive Sensibility of Taiwan's New Defense Strategy." Uh, as you said, China sort of uh, listed Taiwan as a as a core interest. Uh, can you right. tell us a little bit about that article? I mean, what
1: what was it that you were trying, the case that you were trying to make? Sure. So. <clears throat> One of the major debates right now happening in the U.S. defense community is that, you know, we still officially have a policy of strategic ambiguity, meaning that it's unclear whether or not the U.S. will actually defend Taiwan if there's and under what conditions. Uh, But it's increasingly clear that the U.S. will line up. Uh, I tend to be speaking personally, uh, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical that China thinks, oh, well, the U.S. hasn't officially declared, <laughs> yeah. so we can kind of bank on that to, to you know to say that oh they might not show up. Uh, I think China assumes that we're going to show up, and therefore you know that kind of drives a lot of this dynamic. But within the defense community, the question is: okay, if we're going to show up, is Taiwan adopting the the force posture that's necessary to last out and wait and, and wait it out until we can, well, until we can arrive and kind mm-hmm. of bail them out? Uh, and so that would mean things like uh more attritional warfare uh you know anti-tank weapons anti-ship missiles uh guerrilla fighting optimizing the population for a long-term guerrilla fight um which you know and i think the point i was making the article was that look i understand why that may be more effective but at the same time it all depends on the united states coming riding to the rescue and if you don't have that. If you don't give Taiwan the guarantee, then it makes a lot of sense for them not to follow that policy. They want to have these big, flashy systems because if an F-35, but no, they're not going to get F-35, but like if an F-16 late late model F-16 gets shot down, then they can say, well, look, the U.S., one of your premier weapon systems got shot down. Are you going to let that stand? Well, then you definitely have to come to the rescue. And so for Taiwan, the idea is that first and foremost, we have to have the United States here. Everything else is secondary to that. If our force posture is less effective but brings the United States in, let's do that, as opposed to the alternative. And so, again, this, I think, underscores, like, you have to understand where Asian states are coming from.
0: Yeah. You you mentioned sort of Taiwan, you know, they have a responsibility the government does to prepare their people to defend the island, right, from a a mainland invasion. And I would just suggest that uh, a model that, that they could look at right now, that's happening right now, is in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine passed a law that sort of created all these civilian or citizen militia units, armed them, trained them, prepared them to defend in depth against a potential Russian invasion. So we see that on the news right now today. Uh, I I think uh, a Russian invasion will probably succeed, but it's going to be a lot more costly for the Russians than they are maybe anticipating and that 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 same kind of uh, defense in depth in Taiwan with these capabilities you just mentioned anti-ship cruise missiles anti-tank uh, weapons uh, guerrilla fighting all that kind of stuff that greatly complicates the challenges for a for a Chinese invasion uh, with the People's Liberation Army absolutely uh so we're coming to the end of our show today uh Dr. Raymond Quo thank you for for taking time from your busy schedule working at RAND to join us um can you tell us a little bit about the a little bit more about the two books you launched this year? Uh, rename give us the titles again and where people can buy them.
1: Sure. So a lot of the discussion today has been based on my book, uh, Contest Initiative. Uh, it focused on how <clears throat> how the United States and its partners can respond to this maritime gray zone strategy, uh, China's maritime gray zone strategy in the East and South China Seas. Um, the second book uh, is called Following the Leader. This is more of a transhistorical work looking at why do alliances like? How do states develop their alliance strategy? And what do alliances do for the international order? How do they stabilize the international system? And what benefits do they provide? Uh, both of these are uh, available uh, to, for purchase through Amazon, where all of our stuff is now, evidently. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Or if you're interested, you can also find uh, find them through on my website, um, which is rkuo. Dot weebly, weebly dot com.
0: Okay, Ramquel. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Uh, Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. And as you may have heard me say at the beginning of the show, my latest novel, Command and Control, co-authored with David Bruns, launched yesterday across all the major booksellers. And if you buy Command and Control, please leave an online review. Every review helps, believe me. Have a great finish to your week. Take care, everyone.